this week's Asia Research Story. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Renee Jeffrey. I'm a Professor of International Relations in the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. And it's my pleasure to be hosting another great Asia Research Story. Uh, before I do, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the various lands on which we're meeting, watching and participating in this event. Um, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. For those of us who are joining us live via Zoom today, um, welcome. It's great that you're able to join us uh, this week. Um, there'll be a short Q&A at the end of the session, so please submit your questions um, using the chat function. Um, and don't feel like you have to wait right until the very end of the conversation before sending them. Um, it would be really great if we had some questions ready to go uh, when the Q&A session starts. Um, and of course, we're using the Researching Asia Stories hashtag um, on Twitter, so please join the conversation um, on Twitter during the presentation, but then also um, afterwards for the rest of the day um, as we continue to um, talk about um, the ideas um, and the work of our guests today. Um, for those who are listening um, or watching the recording, um, I hope you enjoy the conversation and that you're able to join us live um, at some point in the future. So I'm really excited um, to introduce uh, this week's guest. Um, I wasn't exaggerating when I wrote on Twitter earlier in the week um, that today's guest is one of the brightest rising stars of international law. Um, I think she's a little bit embarrassed by that description, but um, I don't think it's an exaggeration. Uh, Dr. Emma Palmer is a lecturer in the Griffith Law School at Griffith University, uh, which she joined in 2018. Um, she has a Commerce Law degree, a Master of Laws and a PhD, all from the University of New South Wales. Uh, Emma's work focuses on international criminal law, human rights and humanitarian law, transitional justice, um, infrastructure, governance and regulation, gender and international law and legal systems in Southeast Asia. Um, so welcome, Emma. Thank you, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. All right. Um, so you've had a pretty exciting week. <laughs> I know that I was very excited to get this in the post about half an hour ago. So just in the nick of time. Um, you know, there's something about seeing an actual physical copy of a book that you've written for the first time that's, that's really, really very special. So um, I hope you're enjoying the experiences of having, you know, the book, you know, in its physical form for the first time. Yeah, it's quite surreal, I have to say, yeah. but, but exciting, yeah. Um, love the cover. It's so evocative. Um, where, did the, where did the cover image come from? Yeah, so that was uh, an exciting and interesting time. So the cover, I, I looked at a lot of different things. I, um, I was hesitant to have faces and, and people involved uh, in the cover, but... I, one of the kind of themes that comes up in a few of the interviews that I mentioned in the book uh, is that of shelter and the idea that we have different conceptions and understandings of shelters. So I had that sort of theme and um, I was also aware that in some, or in some forms of Buddhism in particular, the parasol has a particular symbolic meaning of um, a shelter from suffering potentially and there's, there's lots of different interpretations. Um, so yeah, when I came across this, very striking image of the parasols in Bagan in, in Myanmar. It just seemed to fit a lot of those things. And also, you know, it's got all these different bright colours and diversity in it. And there's the contrast of the dark and the light, but also these gradations in between, which is what the book's really all about is 
is um, you know trying to shift away from very binary kind of approaches and, and look at a, a range of different voices and and understanding. So yeah, it just fit, ticks lots of those boxes. Yeah, it absolutely does, and it's really striking. It yeah. just looks weird, and it it is unmistakably um, you know, a Southeast Asian sort of image. So yeah, it's it's really great. Um, so we're going to talk about what's inside the book um, in a bit. <laughs> But before we do, I wanted to talk to you a bit about how it is that you came to be doing um, this sort of research. Because um, I think it's fair to say um, that you started out a fair distance um, away from what you work on um, today. So you, you studied commerce law and then you went and worked as an investment analyst. Yeah. Um, and that's, as, well, from my perspective, that's not the most obvious starting point for somebody who ended up working on international criminal law and human rights. Or, or is it? Was there something about that that led you to this or was this a complete break and a decision to completely change what you're going to do with your life? Yeah, um, well, like everything, it's probably a, a little bit of both if you have a complete break but also um, there was a continuity there. I, it's obviously, yeah, it's not an obvious leap. Um, I guess the context is I became an investment analyst in that market peak just before the global financial crisis and I've been studying commerce law I was very interested in the way global markets work and I thought it would be you know, a really great way to get exposure to that and to apply what I thought were my mathematical skills but also my research and, and communication sort of skills and in this role that also made my family really proud and, and you know, seemed quite exciting at the time. And I was mainly working on infrastructure, private equity investments and I, I did genuinely really enjoy the kind of um, problem solving and research side of that work, um, including little bits of work with our alternate work um, clients, including in Hong Kong and in Singapore. But equally, as I sort of did more and more transactions, it wasn't, uh, for me personally, it wasn't really intellectually fulfilling in the way that I think I might have, um, well, I, I kind of knew it was always going to be the case actually, but it just sort of became more and more evident. And as yeah. the global financial crisis started to unfold around me, I was just becoming, it was just becoming harder and harder to work in an environment that I was just um, so sort of sceptical of a lot of what was going on in the world and also in the workplace. So, yeah, I mean, when work was sort of suggesting that maybe I'd go and do an MBA or something, and I just, instead, I decided to start a master's, and I started a master's in international law and international relations, um, actually, to try and kind of make sense, I think, of a lot of what was going around me um, at work. And, and once I started studying though in that field, that was kind of that was kind of it. I think a lot of things just fell into place. I was still working full time at that point, sort of as I was studying. Mm. And it did sort of alter things. And so then I was lucky enough to do an internship actually with um DFAT with Australia's mission to the UN at the Human Rights Council in Geneva. So I left that job some traveling and when I got back I just knew you know I wanted to do something different in law ideally international law and actually I, I volunteered at a conference and I did a bit of networking and I was lucky enough to come across um, Professor Sarah Williams and she and also Louise Chapel they were working on a couple of Australian Research Council grants and they needed someone to do research in the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia and so I jumped at the opportunity and kind of everything went from there and I was also doing some volunteering at a women's uh, legal, a community legal centre that provides advice for women. I'm still on the board of that centre actually. And so a lot of things kind of coalesced and, and basically just gathered pace from there. So 
Yeah, wow. I mean, that's, yeah. And again, as with last week, you know, a great story about sort of, you know, trying out new things and then opportunities come along and being able to sort of embrace new opportunities um, and sort of head in a head in a new direction. Um, yeah, very lucky, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so you ended up working on these two really great ARC discovery projects. Um, and then you decided to do a PhD um, at a, around the same sort of time, I gather. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so why why the PhD? Why the sort of going sort of you know all in on the academic side, if you like? Yeah, it it, it, it honestly just seemed like the most natural and obvious thing to do. I'd been thinking about it while I'd been sort of travelling a lot, and you know I, I perceived that this was a complete sort of redirection in my career, and I and I just knew that I would need training to do that um, basically. And I had that opportunity and I was really, you know, strongly encouraged and lucky to have the, the mentors that I had as well that yeah. helped me make that that decision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you've um, certainly, um, I think, benefited from some really, really great people that you were able Definitely. to work with, um, you know, from the very, very beginning. So, yeah. PhD, I don't want to talk too much about it because I want to sort of get to the book, but the PhD was focused on international criminal law in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And what I'm interested, particularly for the context of this conversation, is yeah. what inspired the Southeast Asian focus? Had you yeah. studied much of Asia before or spent a lot of time there? Like, yeah. what, what inspired that? Yeah, so I am not an Asia specialist. I'm very, um, really conscious of that, particularly now. I think maybe I was a bit oblivious, honestly, when I set out. Um, I mean, I, I studied Indonesian at school and uh, I was actually studying it at the time. So I had, you know, had an interest in all that kind of thing. I've done some travel, all those normal things. But, um, I actually set out when I was planning the PhD, wanting to do something on international criminal law and I wanted to do something regional. I was, and partly this probably came from that experience working in the financial industry, but I was really interested in the sort of domination of the International Criminal Court at the time in discussions about international criminal law in our region. There'd just been a conference on that theme at UNSW. And so I actually started out with a proposal to look at engagement with international criminal law across the whole Asia Pacific, which was a small project, obviously, <laughs> but involved me using my finance skills to do these enormous spreadsheets of like every country in Asia, the Asia Pacific's treaty ratifications, um, different domestic laws relating to international criminal law and humanitarian law, engagement with different mechanisms and that kind of thing. And I thought I'd probably look at Australia or something else. Um, but it, it just became clear that you know, if I wanted to look at approaches to international criminal law beyond as well as you know, with engagement with the International Criminal Court and a range of different approaches that involve domestic legislation, so I, it was going to be a legal PhD, so domestic legislation and, and mechanisms, then um, it made it just made sense to focus on the region that was then and maybe, and maybe it still is, most maligned for not engaging with the International Criminal Court, which was, which was Southeast Asia. Um, so it actually came about through that mechanism. So, yeah, it's funny now. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't encourage somebody to approach research in the region that way, but honestly now not having existing expertise or being from the region, you know, like it seems, it honestly seems pretty sort of self-indulgent and, um, and crazy. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just important to be honest and transparent about that process. Yeah, and these things very often take on like a really interesting evolution. Um, 
you know, starting off with one particular project and a particular sort of scope in mind and then it ends up being, you know, something something quite different. Um, and there is something really nice about hearing about, you know, that evolution along the way and how people made those decisions as they, you know, as they were conducting their research um, and things. Um, so the book, um, the book is based on the PhD, but I can absolutely attest to the amount of work that went um, into transforming it into a book. Um, for those of you um, don't know, I had the privilege of being able to read um, and comment on some of the chapters as they were being revised. And I can say this is a really good example of how successfully to turn a PhD into a book. So, you know, they're quite sort of different, different beasts. It doesn't read like a PhD um, in any way anymore. It's, it's much more engaging and, and far less sort of, you know, formulaic than you, know, you would expect a PhD to be. Um, and the book examines how states in Southeast Asia have adapted approaches to prosecuting international crimes. Uh, it looks at four cases in the region, Cambodia, the Philippines, Indonesia um, and Myanmar. And one of the things that I think is really, really striking about it is just how different these cases are. That, you know, we put them together in Southeast Asia, but actually they are so different in so many really interesting and important ways. Um, you've got Cambodia, which has the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, which was established to um, prosecute crimes during the Khmer Rouge period. We've got Indonesia, and I want to come back and talk about Indonesia in a minute because I think the Indonesian case is really, really fascinating. Um, Philippines, which has had this really significant role in the development of global human rights norms um, from the 1960s and all these processes and mechanisms and yet right now seems to be having all sorts of issues um, dealing with international criminal law. Um, and then, of course, we've got Myanmar, um, which is in the midst of a transition. And that must have been actually quite difficult to include because, of course, that, that case is moving, and they're all moving all the time, but that one in particular, yeah. um, and that there, you know, we, there was no engagement with the ICC yet at the time that you finished the manuscript, I don't think. Um, so that's, that's a bit tricky. But what I'm really interested in then is, is how you went about researching these four very different cases and get, how, how do you go about doing fieldwork on something like this in these really challenging environments? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and they were chosen deliberately to sort of represent these different uh, types of engagement, different types of legal frameworks and um, sort of responses to the norm, if you will, of criminal justice. Um, so I did a combination of things. With this book, I did a lot of document analysis um, using Enviva reading arguments from civil society groups within and beyond the region and international reports and all sorts of things, of course, as much reading as I could before before sort of diving in. Um, and then I spent, I did spend several months <clears throat> sort of between those, travelling between those countries and, and interviewing people, so some formal interviews and a lot of other discussions. And of course, you know, Skype, heaps of Skype calls and follow-up um, meetings. I would love to have done more. I guess that's one of the many challenges of doing regional research is that you know, life happens and the distance makes things difficult <laughs> to, yeah. to do that. But um, yeah, so I was talking mostly to civil society representatives, and, um, officials working on these topics as well, lawyers, and um, I carry, you know, 
I mean, it's not the detail of it all, but I um, carried out semi-structured interviews. I did a lot of preparation for my interviews, but mostly just ended up listening to, to people's um, stories, which, you know, revealed more than, than anything. Um, I think, but you mentioned the challenges. Yeah, so the challenges I was really conscious of involved the potential security risks. I was really aware of the kind of ethical and, and elements of talking about these sensitive topics in some places at those times. And I guess also just logistical issues. One that I actually wanted to, to mention, so I'm glad you brought it up, that I, I was sort of less immediately aware of, but were actually really important and, and, and difficult, were just uh, learning to do that kind of research, learning to listen, uh, learning to not bring my own assumptions into the interviews, which I learned the hard way, I think a few times. Um, so cultural awareness, Probably as part of that too, and just the just the process of, of fieldwork um, being, you know, can be actually also quite lonely, which I've kind of recalled recently in a self isolation time. Um, you know, and you're doing these sort of really ex sort of extractive feeling interviews, I and mean, then going back to your hotel where there might be other kind of tourists in this particular field and subject matter as well. Um, you know, just I was very aware of the kind of yeah, extractive and kind of almost neo-colonial um, part of that sort of research, which I think was just not something I, I really expected necessarily going in, but I just, I think for people doing research in the region, it's just helpful to be cognizant of. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned earlier um, is to do with, this idea, you're part of the genesis of the project that we very, very quickly say, oh, well, you know, Asia, um, in particular, um, you know, terrible when, we, when it comes to acceptance of international criminal um, law and international human rights norms. We know that you know, the region has, you know, as a region, the lowest level of membership of the ICC, and you know, Southeast Asia is is not much better. Uh, and we could list a million and one arguments as to why we very, very quickly and easily say, oh well, you know, norm resistors not particularly interested in international human human rights um, and so on. But that's really not the story that you tell in this. So yeah, I'd really yeah. love you to elaborate <laughs> a bit more on on yeah. how it is that you know doing this research is really showing that those assumptions aren't necessarily right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean I, part of it is right, you know, and I think that's an important thing to, to acknowledge that it, it that, that account of resistance does have you know trick to it. Um, but I also, you know, when this really came about through talking to people, it's quite, it is firstly quite state-centric in a sense, and I, I don't think it does justice to the, you know, incredible energy and creativity and flexibility of the people working on this issue in the region and their sort of, you know, endurance and also ability to kind of quite nimbly adjust to the, the changing political dynamics and contexts um in in their various situations and I'm, i guess i'm talking about activists but not even just activists activists but there are also people within administrations sort of quietly or less quietly working on these topics as well so i wanted to sort of try and open up that part of the discussion and be a bit less sort of binary about it um, and then even looking at the states you know from a legal perspective there are there are these laws and these mechanisms, and they may have their faults um, and their, their problems. But you know, it's kind of the awkward truth of if you think about the norm of international criminal justice involving states wanting them to adopt domestic laws and um, implement them, 
as part of that that norm acceptance process well actually some of these states have done that and that might not fulfill what the full aspect of the norm and what people might like but they have done some of these things so so that story just seems like a little bit something that should be explored and revealed a little bit more rather than just writing off a situation as one of well you are you're either kind of accepting the norm or completely rejecting it um, but it's also not just like about pointing out the nuance and the complexity for the sake of it. I think, you know, that means that there's all this kind of experience and lessons that are, that are being learned that we can, that everyone can learn from that you're potentially missing out on if you don't sort of go into that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that speaks in a way, um, you know, to the Indonesia case that I, I, you know, mentioned earlier. I think that's a really, really fascinating one. You know, like um, India, Indonesia is involved in the negotiations for the ICC, but it doesn't end up signing their own statute. Um, Yet, you know, this is a state that is not, you know, completely rejecting many of these norms. It has, you know, um, instruments in place that has, has, has moved to actually adopt many, many, you know, elements of, you know, this normative framework. And I think that does raise some really, really interesting questions about whether we're expecting sort of, you know, full acceptance, you know, as, as our benchmark. Um, and, if we are why you know why we are seeing this sort of you know partial adoption if you like you know why is a state like indonesia basically accepting large parts of this but not going the whole way um if you like and sort of you know, signing up yeah, yeah. And look and i think it's it's a good example too of how you know real life doesn't follow the kind of linear constructive sort of pathway of Cambodia say, you know, or even Australia sign a treaty, adopt the legislation, implement it, internalise the norm or, or, or not. Um, yeah. So what I try and do in the book is set out the, the different laws and mechanisms that there are, but also the kind of context within which they were developed and the kind of arguments that were surrounding them and form the context for them. So, for instance, in the case of Indonesia, it goes something like, you know, if you look at the arguments that are in the documents and the interviews about responding to international crimes in that country, we, there's a history of colonialism, of selective uh, post-World War II prosecutions, absolutely criticised, an emphasis on sovereignty of military dominance, um, also ensuring the unity and diversity of the country, and um, and also being a leading democracy in the region. Um, yeah. And with... At, if you think about all of those things, then that approach makes a lot more sense, potentially. Um, but also how, though, it also helps you to think about how that approach might change over time and some of the sort of um, complexities around that. So, yeah, um, I think that's just Indonesia's, it's an example of a country that kind of confounds that um, more linear or uh, traditional storyline that we might, we might think of. And yeah, there's something interesting in that. Well, why is that? Why can you have a different approach to crimes in 1965, but still be looking at including new international crimes in the criminal code going forward? Uh, yep. what, does that, what does that actually mean? And if we have different approaches to different crimes or different time periods? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that this really speaks to, one of sort of the bigger issues, that's a, you know, a massive theme in international relations, international laws, human rights at the moment, is understanding how norms are you know, developed, spread, diffused, you know, adapted, um, and so on. And I think you know one of the one of the really great contributions of this book um, is adding some more you know to that debate and to really start 
you know, challenging a bit more this dichotomy that we we accept that there is no global local dichotomy. Like we've we've known that for some time, yet we fall back to it very very easily and say, well, it's mostly one or the other, or you know, we have a particular sort of hybrid part in the middle. But I think you know what you're talking about is about a, a far more a far more complicated and nuanced way of seeing how these things interact and actually questioning those ca- you know, those categories themselves to say you know what we understand as the local might not might not actually exist in that form that might not be the reality on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's, it's actually really difficult because practically, you know, I still use those terms in the book. Yeah. I still use them, and and I just sort of try and qualify them initially and, and delve into it a little bit more in the latter chapters in particular. Um, this challenge that we are talking about international norms and um, various ideas of what local is, but when you're actually uh, set out about doing this kind of research, it's quite obvious that that just doesn't actually, that doesn't fit with reality. And I think a lot of us have come across that. Um, not just you know particular arguments, whether they're human rights arguments, um, whether they're local or international, is not clear. Whether a particular actor represents a global or local voice is never really clear. Um, and so it's just, a, it's a real challenge <laughs> practically as well as I think theoretically for us. Um, so it's sort of, and on the other hand, you know, these spatial classifications matter and they help in some ways because they show that a particular context of colonialism in a specific place or that crimes happen in a specific place or that a protest is deliberately chosen to happen in a particular place at a particular time um, can make a difference in, in terms of the arguments that are produced. So, I mean, basically I, I draw on the work of, of a lot of others in most of exploring this, but trying to use different examples to sort of show how how and when um, we might think beyond those, those divisions might be useful to think about, but also to kind of keep them um, qualified in their mind. And recognise that sometimes the division between local and global can be better understood as a division of, um, of power and of access to particular opportunities and forums. So do you have access to speak in the Hague versus somewhere else or online or, or to use a particular legal argument or not, um, or not and that kind of thing. So I try and look at that a little bit in the book as well and hopefully yeah, give examples to, to illustrate that. Yeah, and I think what's what I really enjoyed was is sort of the tying of that into your work um, on civil society um, actors and just how how well and readily civil society actors really reveal all of those sort of sets and of tensions and nuances, um, if you like, between sort of you know traversing those two categories but actually not necessarily belonging to them and and so on. Yeah, I think that's right, and and um, that's part of the. Uh, adaptive uh, aspect of it. So you, you could be citing domestic laws and constitutions in priority over international laws, even when those laws are based on the international laws, um, responding to different political situations by targeting you know, particular individuals uh, known to have studied in a particular country or have a particular background, yeah. uh, you know, framing your arguments to represent ideas like sovereignty or military professionalism that seem important to those recipients. Mm. different reparative mechanisms or truth-telling or history approaches depending on um, the kind of background again of, or, or understanding a particular context. So all of those different, different things. Okay. Um, look, I've got some questions um, that are popping up here. So maybe we should um, have, have a bit of a look um, and um, 
see what people are asking. So um, I have a question here. Could you talk more about the rationale behind the different case study selections? Yeah, I'd love to. It's always a, I think it's a, it's a really difficult one. And I did actually try to apply criteria to this process, but in hindsight, it's, it's interesting to review that actually. So I wanted to, I was really interested already in the idea of exploring socialization approaches. So the idea of ratifying a treaty and implementing it. Um, and localization or adaptive type of approaches. So I wanted to have cases that were kind of uh, most likely acceptors of international criminal justice at the socialization end and and least likely and kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe most likely for adaptive. And so it kind of went from there. So to do that, I was looking at um, is the state of public statute, have they adopted domestic legislation to prosecute these specific crimes? Have they established specific mechanisms and legal mechanisms to prosecute these crimes and a range of, of different things? And it kind of went from there. And I, I mean, there's, there's a lot more detail in the first chapter of the book actually to, to come about this. But, you know, I recognise that. So I had Cambodia is, you know, signed the treaty, got the law, done some prosecutions. And so already you can see that, well, that's a kind of a most likely case that that was already a little bit problematic. Um, mm. But I recognise, for instance, that Timor, I could also have had Timor less. For instance, um, and you know, and the, the reason I didn't choose that country was because I instead, for other reasons, wanted to have Indonesia because it had a domestic um, mechanism in place, and so I wanted to have that diversity represented in a sense. But there are countries like Singapore, like Thailand, that I also really could potentially have put within the framework. Um, you know, people say, well, why don't Thailand's are really good for the least likely case? But actually, at the time, there was discussion about a referral to the International Criminal Court related to the red shirt protests. So that was actually not quite that clear. Um, yeah, so anyway, so basically, I was trying to make sure I had a diversity of states that had none of those laws and none of that engagement, uh, states that had all of them, and, you know, uh, one or two that had different aspects of those in the middle. Um, so that's how that came about. So Indonesia and the Philippines, I should say, were the ones kind of in the middle. Indonesia having a domestic mechanism um, and the Philippines having a law in place and at the time having chosen to ratify their own statute but not having actually prosecuted international crimes yet at that stage. I mean, but again, things changed so much. So would the same exercise today, Rifia, give you the same case studies? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in talking about you know, that change, um, another question here is, is it fair to say that Southeast Asia does not engage with ICC processes and what are the reasons for that? And that, that in itself is a really interesting story from the last few years of how much things change and go back and forward with the Philippines and Malaysia in particular. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Malaysia also, would, you know, in hindsight would have been really interesting, but... Anyway. <laughs> it would have been really tricky. Yeah, um, that would have all happened at the time you were revising the manuscript, really. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that is fine then, withdrawing and. Yeah, it did. There, were a lot of up, there was a lot of updating going on towards then. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a question here from Nadia, um, who's one of our PhD students. Um, and she's saying um, that she's interested to hear more about how you, as a foreigner, did research on really sensitive issues um, in these countries um, and she's you know sort of saying that from the perspective of having to do sensitive research herself um, in the case that she's looking at. Yeah so look I think there's a I'd, I'd be very happy to have a longer conversation with you firstly Nadia about this. Um, so there are particular security things definitely to keep in mind um, that that I've thought about 
um, a lot, actually. And I think the other thing is, uh, you know, uh, from a methodological perspective, thinking about the sorts of questions you ask in the way that they're worded. Um, also, there's kind of a cultural awareness part about understanding that sometimes people might just not talk about some things and learning when, when to leave that and not, but that was, again, I could talk about in, in more depth later. Um, but I will say also that in a lot of cases, people actually really want to talk about these issues, maybe more so than you would think. And a lot of the precautions that you go to to make things very anonymous and very um, careful are, you know, for various activists, completely crazy because they, they want to tell you the story. <laughs> and so that there's also that aspect as well. And then that, that presents its own challenges, I think, is, you know, to, to think about. Um, so I think there's just a, it's, it's really about, um, on the one hand, planning and trying to think through what things might arise, but also being flexible and recognising you'll probably never be quite totally prepared for all the things that might, might happen. Um, but it doesn't hurt to better safe than sorry to, to be as secure as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that big security issue and that the planning around who you're talking to and how you're doing yeah. it and what you're asking them. And then data security. Part of the interesting part of doing that is the fact that it's live and that people people are unpredictable and they will tell you things that you weren't expecting or you know these will unfold in in all sorts of interesting ways that you might start you know getting information that you never you never knew that you wanted in the first place so yeah look and i actually think a lot of the emphasis beyond the international chemical came about through those interviews where for a lot of people it just wasn't that important to their day-to-day -day work so and, and that at first was was quite challenging to deal with because you know it seemed to be quite central to to my thesis but actually in the end that was you know that was a a, a result you know that was actually part of the findings was that there's so much engagement going on well beyond that core and well beyond without that language and, and that's the story um, so we've got a question from Fugu here. Um, did you incorporate any discussion around formal and informal practices of domestic context? Oh, um, so I'm going to take that maybe as a reference to sort of institutionalist approaches and formal and informal frameworks, um, maybe, for thinking about things. Only because I'm pretty sure that you adopt that theoretical approach for yourself. Um, and it's interesting because I thought a lot about applying that kind of theoretical framework, actually. And I still use it when I talk about the book, you know, particularly the way that new arguments and instruments like the Rome Statute are still kind of nested in this historical context. Um, and the, the way that you can have a new formal rules around how you should respond to violence and that they might not be implemented again because of the, the informal rules that, that persist. So uh, I I didn't I didn't go down that route because I was very interested in the norm of international criminal justice um, initially, but I don't but I do think it, it's still productive actually, and you know completely. Had I been more familiar maybe with that theoretical approach initially, I might have it brought in more of that kind of historical institutionalism than, um, than I did. Yeah. Oh, and Caitlin um, Byrne is asking. Um, that she wonders whether you looked at the role that ASEAN um, as either enabler, inhibitor um, of international criminal law principles and norms and processes in the region. So, you know, what, what's the yeah. role of ASEAN? Great question. And I had actually a big chunk that came out of the book and the PhD about ASEAN. Um, 
and because I think it's it's fascinating and continuing to unfold. And I know you, like you and Warren and Graham's been doing some work on this and and others, and um, particularly the role of Aichadazing Environmental Commission on Human Rights. Uh, and some of the some of the sort of mechanisms that ASEAN has as potential arenas for discussing and adapting this norm, I think, are quite interesting. Um, partly, the th the difficulty is being that. There hasn't been a lot of explicit engagement with international criminal law from ASEAN. There were there were some early quotes around generally kind of positive around the court, um, but then there, and then there's been it's I was you know I'm really interested in thinking about constructive engagement as a response to international atrocities and that kind of thing, but they've been less focused on legal mechanisms, which I guess is the focus of, of the book, and ASEAN doesn't really have that role in this space. Um, of encouraging states to adopt specific laws, for instance. But its role in relation to Myanmar it has evolved over as a very interesting historically, but also more recently has evolved a lot in that way. So I actually think, yeah, there's probably a lot more work there to be done. Um, but I think it's people that work with us young close and are better placed to do that research. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, we are just about um, out of time. We've run slightly, slightly over, but I wanted just before we finish, um, I wanted to ask you that sort of the what's next question. What's the next big research project? So we, we, we're all going to really enjoy um, this and I'm sure it's going to do really, really very well. So please go and buy it, review it, um, cite it, everybody. Um, it's well worth your time. But What's the next one going to be? Uh, okay, well, the first thing is I'm about to have a baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> 37 weeks pregnant today. So, I, sh I have to say that's my next, um, the next project. Um, yeah. But look, I'm really interested now. So, a, a part of a lot of the sort of ref like reflecting on my own role as a researcher that's come out of this book is that I, I think I'm trying to find spaces where I think I can genuinely add value. And there are not that many people that have worked at investment banks on infrastructure projects <laughs> that have done this kind of research and are interested in international criminal law. There are some, but um, that's the direction I'm going in. I'm really interested in the role that infrastructure plays uh, in relation to atrocities and violence, both as a uh, being proposed as a solution, infrastructure development as a solution to violence, um, but also as being very much involved often in the perpetration of atrocities. So I'm sort of starting then to look more and more about um, yeah, the role of infrastructure in atrocities. Basically. Great. So if we did this interview in sort of two years' time, I wouldn't be saying, oh, it's really strange that you, know, you started in one position and you ended up somewhere different, that in <laughs> fact um, all those little strands are sort of going to come together. Um, yeah, I think that's right. It probably sounds very different to say I'm going to do something on infrastructure, but actually, you know, I think it's really yeah. nice progression and moving together, hopefully. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you um, for your time um, and, you know, best of luck um, with the book. Um, and, yeah, we've really enjoyed um, having this conversation and we'll continue on on Twitter, I'm sure. Um, and for everybody else who's listening in, next week um, I'm going to talk to Luis Cabrera about his okay. new book, um, The Humble Cosmopolitan. And he has posed a really intriguing um, sort of conversation starter already about this idea that a humble cosmopolitan um, is an oxymoron. So I'm really, really fascinated to find out why he thinks um, cosmopolitans aren't usually humble. So I um, hope you can join me next week for that one. So thank you. Right. Goodbye. Thanks so much, everybody, and for all your comments as well. And hi. <laughs>
<laughs> all of the, the people that we don't get to see. <laughs>